0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Prog Notes, where we bring you reviews of albums from the Progressive Rock Archives. My name is Destin.
1: And I'm Drew Brown.
0: And today we are listening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band... That was released June 1st of 1967 by the Beatles, and you're probably wondering why the Beatles. Uh, we will be discussing that, but before we go any further, we have a special guest that is joining wait, us today on this episode. Wait, wait,
1: I, I, I have to introduce her. I know. It's, I was gonna let you. I was gonna oh, let you do that. You are, I'm. Thank you. Yeah, um, go right ahead. Uh, we have a special guest today who uh, kind of got me turned on to Prague rock to begin with. This is my very lovely older sister. Rachel Brown. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Rachel! You are very welcome. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I'm very honored to be here.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Uh, so she, uh, you you got me started on a lot of my musical journey to begin with, Uh, and the Beatles was definitely a huge uh, just love that we shared together. This was a huge huge interest of both of ours. Yeah, absolutely awesome so
0: continuing to go back in time uh obviously we get to hear the rawness of recording in mid-1967 it's funny how we've done this drew i don't know why we've done this but literally we started in 1976 went to 73 71 and now we're at 1967
1: we've so we've been going back in time i know man.
0: i mean i don't know i mean we can't go back in time any further well i mean we probably could but just not too far but Either way, so this album was recorded from November 1966 to April 1967. It took about 700 hours to complete, guys. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot. It is. I mean, that's a lot of time. So, um, but without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the Beatles here. And this is actually a question um, that I'd like to go, Hal, go ahead and put this out there. Why are the Beatles on this? Drew, Rachel, like, this is... Like, this is probably one of the best pop bands ever to hit the United States, let alone probably the music industry. Why the heck are the Beatles on this show?
1: Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and and field that. Um, <laughs> right so ahead. I, think, I think personally this was the start of progressive rock. And a lot of music historians debate back and forth whether that's true, whether it was King Crimson, whether it was the Moody Blues with their first concept album, Days of Future Past, or anything like that. But I think that this band really started to progress the field of rock like no other band has done since then, especially for the time period they were in, the technology they were using, uh, and the expectations of what rock was. Let's not forget that rock and roll was really a 50s thing, right? And then it kind of transformed. They took it um, and made it a bit more... Uh, pop oriented. They progressed it a bit with stuff like Rubber Soul and Revolver. And then this album specifically, they hit an entirely new wave of sound and experimentation that I think falls into a lot of what they did, falls into the category of progressive rock. Um, Rachel, would you agree?
2: Absolutely. I would agree. Um, yeah, they were doing things that nobody else was doing at the time. The, the, the genre of rock and roll, uh, which obviously progressive rock falls under rock and roll, um, the genre of rock and roll would not be what it is without the Beatles. And I know that that's a huge statement to make, you know, other people can debate it, but I mean, it's just like saying that rock would not be the same, um, without Elvis. I mean, and it wouldn't, you know, even though his sound can be considered, you know, many things, country gospel rockabilly, you know, um, maybe not straight what we consider rock and roll today. Um, the Beatles are exactly the same way. They, it would not be the same without them. Um, and especially as they moved from what you were saying, Destin, that pop sound of, you know, we're all going to, we're going to wear these uniform gray outfits and we're going to try to fit the trend and break into that trend with yes, something's Slightly different, but we're very much going with the mold of what the '60s sound was evolving into, or at least the early '60s. And then when they started doing their own experimentation um, and branching out with, um, like what you mentioned, Drew, Rubber Soul and Revolver, precursors to Sergeant Pepper's. By the time they hit Sergeant Pepper's, it was just incredibly experimental what they were doing. Absolutely, I, I, and
0: I think I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there too because I think I think a big misnomer of progressive rock or prog rock, and and I believe the reason why some people don't like it and it's partially true, is that they think that it's way too technical for them to understand. And if you believe it is too technical, or, or maybe you're not a musician or don't understand the technical side of music at all, that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy prog rock. And, and I think examples of this include Dark Side, which we've already listened to. And, and prog rock is really just, it's, it's not about the solo, you know, and I know that I've mentioned this in the past, but it's, it's not all about the long songs. It's not all about the epics. It's not all about mm-hmm. the solos. All it is is just prog rock is just pressing against the status quo, experimenting and getting out of the box, which has been done with Sgt. Pepper's, and that's why the Beatles are here. And I and I, I think mm-hmm. I I think that's partially I think part of the reason why some people get turned off by that a little bit, um or or when you mention prog is that there's like oh I you know I, I you know it's just it's all these guys are just ripping solos and stuff like that, and that's not really I don't I don't believe that to be completely true you, you know um i and i think that that's what the beatles did with this album i i, I find this to be a uh, a fully a transportational beatles album for sure mm-hmm. and uh absolutely and so rolling mm-hmm. and, and and i know we'll probably go ahead and touch this up but uh, rolling stone rates this album as the number one of all time and it's the third best-selling album in the uk so this this made a splash didn't it
1: it did, and also just for a fun fact, very quickly uh, out of the top 10 on that Rolling Stones list, four are Beatles albums. Mm-hmm. Just so people know, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, dude. and
0: <laughs> so, Pepper's was also the first rock album to win a Grammy album or Grammy for Album of the Year. Did you guys know that? I I didn't know it was the first I, rock album to do yeah, that. Yeah, it was. I did not yeah, know that. It was the first rock al- I mean, this. I, I guess that could be opinionated, but I guess they considered Sgt. Peppers to be a rock album, and that rock album won the Grammy for Album of the Year, and it was the first time
1: a, a band ever did that. Right. It also, it also won a couple more. It won four Grammys that year. It won Best Contemporary Album, Best Engineered Recording, um, non-classical yeah. genre. Um, and Best Album Cover, which is something we will discuss as well, the album cover. But in addition to what you had said uh, as for winning Album of the Year, just those three as well. So this racked up a bunch of awards oh, when yeah. it came out. And
0: so I, I want to clarify something um, before we dive into this thing, before we go take a trip back to 1967, I want to clarify something about the podcast so far with what we're doing. So in the future, of course, we will certainly start listening to more maybe modern prog and albums that may have progressive influences. But from a historical standpoint, we wanted to first listen to some of the most iconic albums in prog rock that helped shape what it is today. So I highly encourage everyone to listen to all of these albums that we've been listening to first. You'll slowly start to develop a greater respect and love for the subgenre. Um, so continuing with that, with Sgt. Peppers, let's dive into this thing, guys. So, Rachel, I have a quick question for you. Um, Where were the Beatles at at this part of their career? It's 1967. Where are they at? Where is their mindset out before they started recording this thing?
2: Okay, well, you've got to understand that you know they had ridden the pop wave. You know they had made their huge splash in Britain in 1963. Um, They had started as you know a tiny little Quarry Man band. Doing stints in Hamburg, Germany, um, the Cavern Club in Britain, just little, little venues. And of course, after um, Brian Epstein, their manager uh, came along, took them under his wing, gave them the uniform look of the very familiar, iconic, matching um, gray uniforms, you know, the the uniform (laughs) bow at the end of their performances, you know, all of these things that kind of made them. that typical pop band but gave them a little bit more of a refined edge to that they had ridden this huge wave of Beatlemania um in Britain and then moving on into the United States uh United States yeah but they had just really gotten sick of it um for lack of a better term I suppose I mean the fame was great but um they wanted to do more in the studio So, um, I think it was actually before Revolver. um, They stopped touring. Their very last show was in San Francisco um, in 65, I believe. Could be 66, but right before um, Revolver. So, you're talking about just about a year um, before starting in on Sgt. Peppers. So,
0: they're they're really Uh, just diving into the artistic side of of the music that they were writing.
2: Right. They wanted to go artistic. Um, They did not want... Uh, I think a good way to put it is even though they were changing the shape of what music sounded like, even by following some of the trends, they were different. Yeah. Um, They really wanted to now totally break away from that and establish their own sound, which, interestingly enough, is still a product, though, of their own time period. Sure. Because at this point in the mid-60s, you had so much social upheaval going on, especially in America. And how could that not also affect the subject of your music, the sound of your music, especially with the drug scene, um, you know, um, hallucinogenics in particular. Um, and that was something that Lennon especially was delving into. I mean, they had all done it at this point, but he, you know, for a while was very, um, mastered by that um, to a certain extent. So you have all of these outer influences that they were now using to, um, Create a new sound.
0: That's-
2: um, and that's what they wanted okay. to do. So that's where they're at in their career. This We're going to try to move away from being the pop band into the rock band. Um, that's doing something more. And of course, they had precursors to that with George getting involved with um, the very Indian sound, which I'm sure you guys want to speak about in more depth later um, with yeah. the sitar. And already having songs um, on Revolver that utilize that instrument and, um, also other sounds. I mean, particularly, um, the, you know, classical, um, instruments like the violin being used in Eleanor Rigby, those sounds they wanted to now expand on.
0: Drew, would you say that this is kind of like the Beatles were in their teenage years and now they're the grown adults and now this is what's happening is, would you describe it that way?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I see it as that way, but you got to keep in mind that, and this is still something that absolutely baffles me, that they were really hitting their stride. And I think, you know, that whole Beatlemania wave in 63 and 64, and you think about that, they're really getting their start in the music scene on a successful level, at least financially successful and culturally significant in 63, roughly. And then they broke up in 1970. Yeah. So... What this was only seven years, and they made such a big impression on rock music and music in general so anyways the the reason I mention that is it's just so weird to think of them as like oh you know this was teenage and now they're adults now it was only like a span of what four years maybe yeah uh, between, i mean sixty three to, to what this was sixty seven right so yeah like four years later mm-hmm. so yes yeah. I see it that way I think partially because of the look they also adopted they had several different um You know, their image, quote unquote, changed so much throughout their career as well. Like Rachel said, they kind of started out as refined. They were shaved, clean cut. They had the Mm mop top phase. And now they're in this weird, hey, let's all grow mustaches because, you know, I I forget who started it. I I read somewhere. One of them started, I think it was George who started with a mustache or maybe it was John. And then the rest of them were like, okay, yeah. we'll just do that too. But, um, <laughs> but you know, this is that phase and John starts wearing his, you know, iconic glasses that he started wearing in his later career. Um, they just seem like a, a very different era of Beatles now. And, and they were. So how would, how would you, how would you describe the album though? Like if you
0: could, if you can come up with like three adjectives, you know, with, with where they're at, right. So they're, they're, they're moving into this kind of new stage. They've stopped touring. They're doing this new uh, new kind of sound. I mean, never mind. I mean, they haven't really, they've started already, but now they're going into this different direction. You know, how, how would you describe the album and how does that pertain or how does that relate to where
1: they were? Like what, what, I would what say, three adjectives and, would you say? I would say explorative, revolutionary, and honestly, this may sound funny to you, but catchy. Because through all of this weird stuff they were doing, it was still the Beatles. It was still something I that totally you could sing that. to. That's what's so amazing about. Mm-hmm. That's what's so amazing about this album is that it has so many iconic songs that people of any age, any demographic, any area in the world can easily tap their foot to. And you're like, but this is still revolutionary. How how were they able to capture this yeah. magic in a bottle?
0: I agree. Um, this is something. This is so, a word that I I, that I always come up with. But this almost and this is kind of like similar to the time, but I describe this album as very pre-psychedelic. I know that's probably kind of out there. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's pre-psychedelic. And also, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, melancholy, and it's a pretty melancholic album, I believe, just way with the whole thing sounds as a, as a whole, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. so mm-hmm. with, with the actual music of everything, right? So, so we've, like I said before, they spent 700 hours they spent 700 hours to complete this thing. Their first album, Please Please Me, only took them 10 hours. So <laughs> you, yeah. could, you could see the difference with that. But what, what the, why the heck did they spend 700 hours on this album, Rachel?
2: Well, I mean, from a technical standpoint, the amount, um, the number of different instruments and sounds um, that I alluded to earlier that they were using in this, um, in this album was so much more than what they were doing in 1963. Uh, you know, I mean, you had guitar, bass, drums, rhythm guitar, you, you know, like the four guys, they could they could reproduce the sounds that they were doing in the studio on the stage. And of course, obviously, the, the quality sounds different when you hear a live right. recording, you know, versus um, in studio. But those were all the the instruments that were needed for them to reproduce the sounds that they had done o- on stage. And so you listen to Sgt. Pepper um, and that would have been so much bigger of a production on a stage. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have taken for them to tour with this kind of an album. (laughs) Um, Because there was no, you know, um, the kind of technology that we have that reproduces sounds of instruments that may not actually be there on stage. And it sounds pretty clear or j- gives you that, uh, that same feel and effect that was not there. You had to haul all of those violins on the stage or you just didn't have violin, you know? <laughs> so, um, just from a technical standpoint, it's going yeah. to take much longer to produce and record this kind of an album than it is. Please, please, please me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, something that you said with that, just with, with having a lot more production I, something that I've always seen with this is that, you know, and I've, I'm sure we can all agree that Prague has or, or, you know, prog rock has a lot of maybe movie like elements. You know, we have a lot of sound effects and stuff that that go along um, within the albums. But this one particularly um, has almost stage like elements like a play mm-hmm. um, or, or, a, or a musical or something like that, which is something that I haven't necessarily seen in other progressive. I've seen a lot of stuff where it's, you know, it's, it makes it feel like a movie you oh, yeah. you're feeling closed, but, and I think because of the recording technology that they had at this time made it sound like that as well. But I also think it, they did some things on purpose, but it made it seem like you're sitting there and watching this happen on a stage. And I think the, uh, the, uh, the album artwork as well also alludes to that a little bit. What, what do you think?
2: Well, oh, c- can I get in here, Drew? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. You good with that? Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, I was going to say that's absolutely intentional. Yeah. Um, And I don't know if we touched on this just a second ago or not. um, But when we were speaking about just the album's significance and it being, you know, voted and rated number one um, out of any album um, by Rolling Stone, um, there's also, you know, whether that's debatable or not, there's also um, a concept about this being the first concept album. Now, I would probably debate that. Um, with a couple other albums um, around that same time period. Right. But, and it is even debatable. There are a lot of pe- scholars and music uh, scholars who debate whether this is actually a concept album because there really is very little link between the the songs, especially not compared to, you know, something like Dark Side of the Moon, which is very obviously a concept album. But the concept of the album intentionally supposed to be a performance is there obviously from the very first track right. on the record and then having a reprise and then having a day in the life at the very end of it almost as your encore um that is incredibly you know intentional that was the point i mean this is why the album is called sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club club band is because you are supposed to be listening to the beatles as another band giving a performance yeah. um, the whole idea was that was it was an edwardian um performance a very old-timey feel which is definitely there as well in the lyrics and the music but at the same time it was so culturally relevant because it also produces a very psychedelic sound which was the sound of the 1960s particularly 1967 being the summer of love and that's what's so incredible about this album is that you get this antiquated feel but you also get this incredibly current feel for the 1960s at the simultaneously that's
1: that's really i I would like to to kind of springboard off that uh, and just say I, I agree that it's it's not really a concept album. I wouldn't define it that way. I can understand where someone would put that in there and why why someone would do that in the sense that, like you said, Paul had an intentional concept to reveal, which was this different persona, all of their different personas, this these alter ego of – sergeant pepper's only hearts club band and that was intentional whereas beforehand with pop and rock and roll albums it was just a collection of songs and there's no link between them whatsoever there's no real intention behind this at all and at the very least you know paul made the effort to say hey no these are different personas and we're going to have a beginning and a reprise and like you said an encore with a day in the life but uh even john and ringo they both admitted it's not really a concept album. They, they were interviewed later about it and they agreed, no, it's not really a concept album.
0: So some people say that it's a concept album. Some people say that it's not a concept album, but it, even if it is, or it isn't drew, would you, would you say that it made concept albums popular or not?
1: Yeah, I think, I think this was the beginning of art rock and okay. art rock and progressive rock are, I don't want to say synonymous, but they're very closely linked. Um, and, uh, we could get into all the specifics of that, but that'll take up way too much time. Um, but this was a concentrated effort to produce something different in the pop slash rock and roll realm. And people knew it when it came out, it was this, okay, this isn't really pop. I mean, you have pop influences and I hear that, but they're experimenting so much that I wouldn't tell someone when I buy this record, take a listen to this pop record, right? You know, so it made such a a significant difference um in that space so i would say at the, be- at the very least the beginning of art rock which again because of how closely related it is i feel to progressive rock where it's kind of elevating it to a more artistic feel and bringing some type of intellectual prowess to it um more so uh than what pop and rock and roll was that's why i would say this is this is the start that's of awesome. progressive rock.
0: that's great well let's take a short break real quick and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the actual music of this record and really dive into uh, a couple of the tracks here and 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 talk about them. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in
1: and stops my mind from wandering. where
0: it will go. Awesome. All right. So I have a uh, a question here because I, I've. I've listened to Sgt. Pepper's a lot. Like I've, I've listened to this album a lot. But what what do you think someone's reaction is to this album when they first listen to it? Is, it? is it normally received well, or do you think that this is an acquired taste?
1: Um, just kind of saying and repeating a little bit of what I said earlier with that, this is still catchy. This is still a catchy album. I think most yeah. people would still really enjoy it. It has some phenomenal tracks. And just a fun fact um serious xm's beatles channel uh i was listening to that a couple months ago and during labor day they had the top 100 tracks voted by you the listener of the beatles the, the best and number one was from this album it was right. a day in the life um so you know and and that's 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 a wide range because the beatles can fit into a wide range right uh, Of, i mean a lot of yeah. people love the beatles um from, you know, people who really love metal and people who love classical, you know. So the fact that all of those listeners on that channel chose, you know, a song from this album, uh, I I think that that says something that people really enjoyed and that it's received well and that most people can sing with it, you know, and identify with the the songs on there, so. Yeah, I would agree. I I think that this is, uh,
0: when I first listened to it, yeah, I mean, it's like, you can still, it's still catchy. It's still cool but at some parts it kind of like takes you in a different direction where you're not expecting. And I really like it about, I really like that about this album because it's still, it's still the Beatles. It still stays the Beatles. It still has the poppy kind of sense to, I mean, we still got the, you know, the, the sitar from revolver and the harmonies from rubber soul, but we, we have it in a different direction that I think is taking it in a really cool way. And it's so interesting to listen to that where, where they were to where they were going and where how they've reached to this place now with this album. It's There's it's just very a lot diverse.
1: Of, it's very diverse. It's and very that diverse. So you're great about right. it is you can have something like we're listening to right now with Fixing a Hole. Um and then also have right after that, She's Leaving Home, which is all like on a harp, and it just seems so lilting and almost yeah. like you're in like a dream state it goes uh, all over the place on man. a cloud it's and crazy. then you can get something much more aggressive which you know a track or two after that is being for the benefit of mr kite which is just so seems kind of aggressive you know and just is z- 80 just totally yeah. out there it seems like you're on like a psychedelic trip which i think is kind of what john wanted with that song but um yeah so it's just uh it's just bizarre yeah. it's such a diverse track um that you've still got those standards in there that people love like when i'm 64 i mean everyone loves that song
0: you know um yeah it's it's bizarre it's interesting but rachel rachel what do you think when it when it comes to this album in in relation to what what the beatles have done in the past like musically is this just as you know catchy and just as kind of um i guess enthralling as the other beatles stuff that they were or did this take you in a different direction from in terms of a listener how did you first react to this when you when you first heard it for the first time
2: oh my gosh I'm trying to remember the first time I heard this album. (laughs) Um, Uh, It was, yeah, yeah, such a long time ago. Um, Like I remember exactly where I was and when I first heard um, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. You know, I I know exactly where I was when I first heard that because it was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit older. Um, But I've grown up with the Beatles. (laughs) So I can't remember the first time that I listened to it end to end. I'm sure that was a lot later. Um, But you know, hearing some of the specific tracks, you know, are just ingrained in my DNA, honestly, at this point. Um, I think that that's a very big question because I have um, several friends who like early Beatles a lot, the poppy sound of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the Beatles in all their phases. I can appreciate them every single um, and every single phase, but I do have an affinity for later Beatles. And I think that starts for me with when they started backing off of the stage and um, with revolver and then Sgt. Pepper's Um, these two albums are special to me, um, you know, and then following all the way through to Abbey road. um, I really like later Beatles. And I think there is a difference um, not that it's not still catchy for sure, because I don't think as a child, I would have enjoyed it if there wasn't a catchiness to it, because that's just, what's so intriguing. I think for children and music, it's a little bit more about this, you know, the sound yeah. of the tune, yeah, the pattern of the yeah. tune than yeah. it is about even necessarily the lyrics, um, or the music itself. But, um, I think that this album There were people who did not care for the Beatles, even you know back in the 60s. Especially maybe the older generation was just not understanding what was going on, Um, and that even that poppy sound, and especially the the mania that the Beatles inspired with the younger generation and the teeny boppers, it was just Mm -hmm. like you know there were a lot of older people who were like you know what we just don't even care, we don't want anything to do with this. But Sergeant Pepper, everyone listened to this album, (laughs) every radio station played this album. Um, I read an article once that said um, and made a massive statement that this was the most unified Mm -hmm. since the treaty uh, the signing of the treaty of Versailles in 1814 that in the Western, um, in the Western. Yeah. That Western civilization has been unified. This is the most that they've been or ever have been. And I, I would agree that there, I do not think that Western civilization, especially because of all the technology that we have now and the, the different, avenues that people can take um to get their media i don't think that western civilization will ever be unified like that again um, and i just think that that's an incredible statement to make that the beatles unified western civilization with this album it wasn't they unified it with i want to hold your hand they unified it with sergeant peppers and that's because they were also capturing other generations that suddenly went wait a minute there's something more going on here than sappy love songs you know Um, so it's definitely got that catchy element element, of course, but there is more going on. And I do think for some people, if you just want the pop of the Beatles, it does take a little bit of, um, developing that taste for this more psychedelic sound.
1: To, to springboard off of that, it's the same, it's the same type of deal. Just it's it's historical significance. In two thousand three, the Library of Congress in the United States added it to the National Recording Registry and deemed it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Wow. So that's yeah. how important that this album is. That that, mm-hmm. that people in the government the, who, who are, did that are, are, are saying that. The Library of Congress added it to the National Recording Register Registry and deemed it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. That's
0: ridiculous, but yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's mean, crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. So that's okay. why it's
1: unfortunate. It's funny that we did like a you know a two parter for Dark Side, Uh but this one <laughs> we're it's a, to one. Keep down to it. it's a big one. Sp- just yeah, just as much of a monster to tackle. They're all they're all big.
2: And to put it in perspective, um, also you know mentioning the ranking of, you know, Rolling Stones, top 500 albums, dark side is actually my very favorite album of all time. And, um, I knew that it like was in sister, that list. Like brother. Yeah. Uh, exactly. yeah. Um, and I knew that obviously dark side was in there, but, uh, and I had read this article before on the top 500 albums, but it had been a while. And so I was, you know, scrolling through it just the other day and did not realize that dark side is number 43. Yeah. I thought it would have been much higher up actually on that list. And just to, to think that, you know, Sergeant Pepper is number one, you know, and also an an album that is just so, you know, significant culturally as well Um, as Dark Side falls much further down the list. I mean, still at top 50, but not up there in the top 10, like I had thought it was.
1: Well, we mentioned on the Dark Side episode that it stayed on the charts for years for what years. 13 years something like that absolutely yeah, it's it like 17 14 something around that yeah it's like yeah. 200
2: consecutive weeks something like that it's
1: ridiculous oh, yeah, I thought it was, yeah i thought it was more i thought it was like 700 some odd anyways but this uh at least it stayed in the charts that that's one thing which is which is an impressive an impressive feat to pull off this album stayed at number one number one not just in the charts at number one in uk for 27 weeks that's about half a year for an entire like mm-hmm. half a year, think about all the different music that was coming out. I around feel that bad time. for them, actually. All the different bands that were coming out and producing new music. This was an explorative time, not just for the Beatles, for a lot of people, mm-hmm. partially because of the Beatles. New bands were emerging. Really important bands were emerging. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the bands state- that we listened to, a
0: lot of bands that we listened to on this show emerged mm-hmm. around this time that we were talking about. Absolutely. I mean, like Rush,
1: Pink Floyd. Uh, yeah. Yes, they were all formed in the late 60s. Yeah this stayed at number one in the UK for 27 weeks and in the U S for 15 weeks. So a little over what, three months, maybe four months, something Something like like that. that, Yeah. So at number one, I mean, that's just incredible that consecutively people said, no, this is still the best after each new record comes out from different groups. This still, it pales in comparison to this, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think a good question is, uh, well, why, you know, we
0: so I think we should actually start listening to some of these. This is when I'm 64. Uh, which is one of the songs on this record you know just listening to this obviously i mean just why why is this so such a big success and we've been talking about you know the reasons of the historical standpoint of it but actually with the music itself like was it the best chorus Were the best choruses in the world ever written was it you know the the catchiest lyrics was it the most intuitive in? you know what what was it i
1: think it's It's because, and I mentioned a bit earlier, that this was really a concentrated effort to raise pop and rock and roll to a more artistic uh, level. And so they started using the studio as an instrument. You'll read that phrase, actually, when you read a couple of articles and uh, and journals about this album. They approached the studio as an instrument. Yeah. So we mentioned Dark Side of the Moon a lot, actually, in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> surprised we have so much. But uh, just, again, Alan Parsons, who engineered the Dark Side of the Moon record and went on to form his own group, the Alan Parsons Project. Uh, pretty significant player in the realm of progressive rock. Absolutely. Alan Parsons. But he was very impressed with the Beatles, particularly on this album, because of what I just stated, that they were... Im- they they were fascinated by by not just musical compositions but sound compositions. Yeah, yeah. You, you I, know, it doesn't I'll matter if you want to touch on that for sure, right? That it's it doesn't matter if you can replicate it on stage or not. And we had kind of touched on that in the past, obviously yeah. um, as well. But he was super impressed with this, and he actually wanted to work at Abbey Road because of that. Uh, he, he he heard this record, and he said, "That's the place where they're doing something new and creative and artistic and experimental." I need a job there. And a year later, I think he got as an intern That's at awesome. Abbey Road Studios, but he was like 17 or 18 when this record came out and it was a huge influence for him. And he adored what the Beatles did with that. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and as a, as opposed to dark side, which Alan Parsons obviously engineered and we've already reviewed it. Of course, the Beatles created this album with the most primitive of tools in the studio, but stayed very inventive at the same time. See with with Darkseid, they had a lot of new technology that came out, you know, but five just I mean, this is just five years before that, right? I mean, 67 or six years, six years before yes, that. Yeah, about six years. And and they were, I mean, six years during this time period in the music technology stage is very, very different. And And starting with that was that this album was recorded on a four track tape machine and which is hmm. this is so cool because the way this was usually done was to record individual uh, individual instruments on separate tracks and then combine them onto another track right so i mean for example like it, you'd have guitar bass and drums were recorded separately on track like 1 2 and 3 and then they were all combined or bounced to an instrumental backing track on track 4 right and then two vocals might be recorded on 1 and 2 the instrumental played back and then the combination of the vocals and the instruments, you know, combined to track four. And so a, a song can be built up layer by layer in that way. But but what's really right. cool is that it was at the cost of sound quality, right? As it, the more and more sound is added to a track, the tape becomes saturated and the sounds becomes distorted. So music this way demands a lot of practicing to play long passages without making mistakes, right? Because you can't keep adding tracks. So these guys were playing these long, long passages right, to to make everything sound as clean as possible. So when people first heard this, it was like, whoa, this is crazy. We got all of these different sounds, and they're all stacked on top of each other, but we're only using a four-track tape machine. And I think actually Paul McCartney recorded the bass after everything was recorded.
1: Yep. Yep. I had read that too, which so is super cool. interesting to think about that the the bass was just Yeah, because because it, it was, I did
0: I think they did a lot of carving and stuff like that. They, they didn't want they wanted to make sure that they that the bass the bass guitar didn't clash with the toms of the drums and, and the bass, the bass kit, you know, the bass drum. So that it was it was recorded last so it would fit fit in the mix really well. And I think the guy who single-handedly took care of this, I believe um I don't know if there's more, there might be more, but the the guy who's credited with it is, is uh Geoff Emmerich. And um this guy, I, I think he actually died in 2015, but he did a ton for this album when it came to just all kinds of different sounds that they, that they came up with. Um, and one of those things actually being the drums. Um, and this is just my, let me, you guys are gonna let me geek out on the drums for just a second? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Is, that, is fine. that fine? Okay, cool. So the, let, the, the drums on this album are just recorded correctly. They they really are. The actual tone of the drum was really captured. This is the first time that they actually close mic'd the drums. So they really created this punchy drum sound for the first time. See, most of the time it would just sound like it was in a room. You can hear the snare, you can hear the kick drum, but these were recorded individually and they were captured extremely well. Golly, I mean, just, just listening to the reprise of, of Sergeant Prep of Sergeant Peppers. What is that? Is that like the second to last? Yeah, it's the second to last
1: song, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. And I, I actually, I love that track. And partially, just real quick, I just want to add, it's partially because of the drum sounds. I love the yes. drum the drums and yeah, the cries of yeah. that section mm-hmm. so
2: much. Yep,
0: dude. I mean that that drum sound that could be something that you heard on the radio today.
1: It was it's, it was just recorded extremely yeah. well. Such they a they it's really... such just like a fat big kick in the face When when yes, one, two, three, four, dude it's super simple but it's just it's so perfect it's so i oh, no. for that
0: yeah and even even on the song good morning good morning right yes they, they did yes they did mm-hmm. a lot yes. the, the drum sound in that was really cool but i also think there's another thing as well and we got it playing in the background for everybody but the beatles i think and this is me geeking out again over like engineering but the beatles kind of invented the compressed brass sound right? Chicago would not exist if it weren't for this album with the Beatles and the way they recorded these instruments. Because that that really kind of, it all sounds like one instrument. You know, like all the brass instruments together are kind of crushed and they fit really, really well in the song. They, they, that was the first time that was really ever done. Most of the time it was normally solo instruments that were playing that. And it's really interesting as well. Have you ever noticed, and, I, and this may be my opinion, but have you guys ever noticed how "Good Morning, Good Morning" sounds just a little bit different than the rest of the album? Like it's a lot more crunchy.
1: Yeah, actually.
0: Oh, absolutely. Actually, yeah. When
2: "Good Morning, yeah. Good Morning" comes on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and the reason for that, and and I think this is right. I don't I don't take my, you know, my opinion here. This this is probably an opinion, but I think it's because of the amount of tracks that they were bouncing. The tape became so saturated because they were bouncing tracks on it so much. I think that's the reason why it sounds kind of crunchy like that, which is cool because it's kind of an aggressive song to begin with. It is with those with that brass and everything. It's super cool. All right, I'm done talking about that. I'm sorry, I had to go on no, that.
1: Oh, that's great. I think that's great, and I, I I had noticed that too. It's funny that you mentioned that, that you even asked. Like, do you think that this song just kind of sounds a little different? Because I've always thought that too. I'm like, there's just something about yeah. "Good Morning, Good Morning" that's just. It's just different, yeah. totally, from the rest of the, the album.
0: I think mm-hmm. I think it's because the tape the tape. Like, I mean, they got the the guitar. Um, do they have piano in that song? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. But they I don't do think have so. a lot of them. Yeah, I think they they have the harmonies as well as the brass, the guitar, the vocals, all of it. You know, and then the sound effects in the song as well. I think those are all aspects of it that really created that song that song to be a little bit different from the rest. But just from an engineering standpoint, this album did wonders for the music industry when it came to, to recording and and that's something that we touched up with Dark side. We keep talking about dark side but either way uh, <laughs> I feel like you know that's something that they did that, that really uh, progressed um, the recording of music and which is I mean we wouldn't have studio recording today and, and certain sounds today like the you know the doubling, the doubling of vocals and, and all of that stuff.
1: To really create this stuff, it was, if it weren't for the Beatles and this album. This was also, you mentioned the sound of the album and just kind of the more technical aspects. I think this was the first quote unquote pop albums to have a seamless transition between songs. I never thought about that before, but you have the transition between, uh, or the different tracks, I mean. But you know, the. the Actually, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Between the you're reprise right. and A Day in the Life, where they're all kind of clapping, but it goes into that guitar immediately that John is playing. Yeah, th- there's that. And even from. Yeah. Yeah, even from the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band to, with a little help from my friends, the Billy Shears right. transition, that's, that's from track to track. That was, I think, the first pop album to have that seamless transition and make it seem more like a concept, like it's part of a cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I usually do this at the very beginning of the episode, but if you don't know the members of the Beatles, you have John Lennon, who sang vocals and played guitar. We have Paul McCartney, who plays bass, as well as sing um, we also have George Harrison, who is primarily guitar. I don't think he sang on this record at all, did he Yeah, not? he did, Within You Without You. That's right. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, so that's um, George Harrison also played guitar, and then we have Ringo Starr on the drums. But Rachel, there's something that I've heard, and I want to make sure this is correct because you're kind of our historical reference here, but I've heard that this is Paul's album. Would Would you agree with that?
2: You knew I was going to want to talk about that, didn't you, Dustin? I, I did.
0: I set it up really well, didn't I?
2: <laughs> you absolutely did. Yeah, you know, because of how much I love Paul McCartney. Um, but it is this is Paul's baby. He, it was it was his idea, and it's really cool because after Sergeant Pepper, you see a lot of um, disunity from. The, the Beatles themselves as well, um, as well as what was going on in the world. It's it's so interesting if you follow their career and you look at how their albums line up with what was going on in history, as well as internally for them. Um, because after Sgt. Pepper, you have what is fondly referred to as the White Album, but was simply titled The Beatles, you know, called the White Album because of its simple white cover with no photograph or anything at all and i love the white album but i have read many places and i i wouldn't necessarily disagree as hard as it is to to want to disagree with it that it is almost like a four way solo album um it's just very obvious that you can tell this one's paul's song this one's john's song you know um and sergeant pepper you're starting to see that because obviously their own writing styles and the things that were influencing them like with george and within you without you and the um eastern philosophy that he was delving into it's easy to see which direction they were all being pulled and you know Paul with um when I'm 64 and that being an homage to his father and the kind of the big band sound that his um his dad liked and played um in the 30s and 40s but the unity that the Beatles had surrounding this album and the the way that Paul was able to kind of pull them all into this project was very reflective of that 1967 kind of unifying feel um before things just kind of started to spiral out of control as well as for the Beals themselves so it's just really really incredible but yes um that was a big rabbit trail anyway it was definitely Paul's idea but you know it would not be what it is without the other three of course (laughs) yeah
0: so Drew do you think that uh I mean with this being Paul's album and you can kind of tell which songs were, were each and like within you without you was that's george harrison's you know what i mean and it's actually interesting i i love george harrison as a, as a guitar player i think he's phenomenal i like the stuff that he writes which is very telling because before i even knew that he did this fixing a hole is the only george harrison solo and it's my favorite one on the entire record huh. and and i was like oh that's why Because he was the only one, and it was interesting as well. Because fixing the hole was also recorded at a different studio. This cracks me up. What the Beatles are here? What do you mean we got to record in a different studio? What is that? What like Uh it's just like okay, but um, but anyway, the lyrics of this album, Rachel, were they all written by Paul? Were they all written, or were they written with Paul and John?
2: No, they were not all written by Paul. I mean, especially um, interestingly enough, within you, without you, is it's on a Beatles album, but it is only George. Um, None of the other Beatles played on that, that song. Um, It's a very
0: interesting song too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It definitely is. Um, But so no, he did not write all of the music behind the album, but a lot of the music was being written jointly still, especially, you know, early Beatles, Paul and John pretty much wrote all of it together. Right. Um, with Sergeant Pepper, um, you're starting to see, I, I think, you know, it would be more apt to say that Paul would start a song, he'd have his general idea for what he wanted, or John would, they'd have a general idea of being, you know, John being inspired by a circus poster for being for the benefit of Mr. Kai, that was John's song. But there are certainly different lines that, you know, he'd bring to Paul and say, okay, how does this sound? You know, oh, let's, let's add this in, you know, the collaboration was still very much there, even though they were starting to have more of their own ideas apart from each other than just sitting in a room trying to, you know, let's, let's write another eight days a week on the piano, you know, that kind of thing where they would sit and they would just write the full song together. I don't think that that was happening as much anymore, but you still definitely had collaboration.
0: So Drew, do you think that the 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 success of A Day in the Life really kind of even though they still had their own songs kind of A Day in the Life was kind of the way, because they end the album with A Day in the Life, but it was also, you know, it's obviously like we were saying it's been ranked like the number 1 Beatles song ever. Was it because they finally came together at the end of the album and had their own little song? Do you think do you think that collaboration was still there and that's what made it such a success?
1: I think it's more between like we've been talking about, um, you know, particularly John and Paul and yes, that song to me when I hear it sounds like a mashup between the two, right? You've got the beginning that is very clearly John and I completely
0: agree with you. And that's, that's what I was, and not just because of his voice,
1: but you can tell those lyrics are very kind of indicative of, of John too, right? He was a bit morose at times. And, uh, uh, Paul just has a more this lilty you know kind of fun jaunty section in the middle and it goes back to John and it's this cool mashup between the two um, And I think yeah people love that and I, they love the transition between those two with the just the bizarre crazy building orchestra that is not really going any direction except up. You know, and not in any particular yeah. fashion. We got We got to tip our hats to off to, uh, George to George Martin. George Martin is for phenomenal. George yeah. Martin, we could do a whole episode on him in and of itself. You know, we um, should
0: actually do that. No, I'm kidding.
1: We should. <laughs> you know, maybe I will. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I love this song. I think it's a phenomenal song. But I have to wonder uh, you know, about George and Ringo and how they felt about this period, if they really felt as connected to this project as Paul did and maybe even John, because I think I heard a little blurb from George saying, you know, Within You, Without You was great. I really loved that. But honestly, this period for me just wasn't that great. It wasn't particularly bad. I just wasn't really that excited. I think at this point in our career, I was, I don't know, it's kind of done Maybe not done, but being a Beatle was not as exciting as it once was. And this project didn't really reignite anything for me besides his personal track, right? Because it was so reflective of what he was going through in his spiritual journey. I was
2: about to say, you kind of have to also take into account where George was. He had very much transitioned from he and Ringo kind of being the the fun loving of the, you know, of the four. Um, He was really transitioning um, into eastern religion neither good nor bad you know because it produced some wonderful amazing sounds for you know um the beatles themselves i mean norwegian wood would not exist without george's affinity and curiosity about eastern religion here we go um oh yeah here it is
0: (laughs) here we go We're back.
2: All right. That's
1: just so bizarre. Um, it's really neat. It's, yeah, but I you love still it. hear the hi hat in the background, which is funny. You yeah. still hear that hi hat mm-hmm. trying to keep time and be like, okay, we're we're gonna into the, the crescendo. Like, what are we? Where are we going? What are yeah. we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> I don't know. Just listen to the hi hat. It's on like you know the sixteenth beat. Just follow. That. <laughs> um, it's
0: unreal. But anyway, going back to what Rachel was saying.
2: Oh no, I was just saying you have to take into account what other things were influencing George and what he was now considering to be more important, um, right. Necessarily than his career, um, in a way, but yeah, I I don't know exactly how much, um, how how significant this album would be to both, um, George and Ringo. And even, even John, I I know this is an incredibly significant album to Paul, but I, I think even John, he was really, really, um, mastered by um, the drug scene at the time and um, especially um, if you read a little bit about the writing of Good Morning Good Morning I mean he really was just inspired by like a box of cornflakes so I mean (laughs) which is awesome why not Um, right? right, yeah why not but you know Cynthia his wife at the time you know just referenced that he really just kind of laced around the house a lot watched TV you know John had kind of checked out of a lot of things as well um so they were all. We're starting to see, even though this was a great unifying project, I think for them, you're starting to see a little bit of the fraying that is going to, you know, expand them into 1968 and the sounds of the White right, Album. Right,
1: but uh, yeah. what you were saying, Destin, was is this? Was it so successful because of all of them together? Absolutely. Like without the influence of them, oh, yeah. these, like the other members, especially this Paul, song. Yeah,
0: this song specifically.
1: Yes. Yeah, you've got to have the other three Beatles there to really make it what it was. You know.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I I wanted to say something else actually about, you know, just the dual collaboration on the songs. Um, interestingly enough, I just recently read about, um, getting better. And whereas you have a day in the life kind of being John's song with Paul's section, Mm -hmm. um, getting better was Paul's song, but some of the more, um, snarky undertones of that song were all john which is not surprising (laughs) um knowing john but you know it's getting better there's paul and then it can't get much worse that's john so it's great to see that mixed collaboration on you know for me one you want to use the term catchy destin one of the catchiest tunes on the album for me would be getting better yes it's palatable for people who are not prog rock fans. And if you're more of a pop and just kind of generic rock fan, you can still enjoy Sgt. Pepper's. But it is also, if you want to take it to a deeper level, you can. And that's what I love is that there are so many different layers to Sgt. Pepper's, depending on how deep you want to go. It's also just to appreciate what was done for music with this album.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. It's difficult to define uh, progressive rock. You know, it really is. I think the best way to kind of identify it is to really see some common threads between things because there are some where you're like, oh, I, I consider that prog rock. And others would say, no, like, like Dark Side of the Moon, I consider that prog rock. A lot of many other, uh, a lot of many other, awesome, I'm super articulate today. A lot of other people <laughs> might say, that, no, it's not prog rock. It's a conceptual album and it's just psychedelic rock. Like that's different. So it's hard to, you know, labels in general are difficult, especially when it comes to something, you know, in an artistic field, right? Like music. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, I think, is a very clear example of taking something and taking it to the next level. And it's a very simplistic way of putting it but that's what prog is right especially there, especially when you're looking at boundaries, taking it to the next exactly. level. Exactly. But especially when you're looking at the Beatles and like Rachel had said before that, um, kind of echoing what she had said. Yeah. They started out as a pop boy band and then they matured, they matured into this and it, it you can't look at this and the rest of their career and say that this was not something that was a big step up. It was a big step into the unknown, and. um that's what progressive rock was, but still maintained themselves as the Beatles still maintained it as being catchy. And, you know, uh, it was very artistic. This is a very artistic album. And, uh, you know, I know we're running low on time. It's unfortunate. We can't really, uh, talk about the album cover because that's oh, super also, cool. You know,
2: I was going to say, I, we have not touched on the album cover. Well, which is earlier,
1: I, Well, no, I had mentioned earlier that, um, you know, the library of Congress said it was, they deemed it culturally historically or aesthetically, significant, mm-hmm. right? And that 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 pertains to the the vision of it, right? The actual visual display of the album cover. So this was something super different. I feel like most albums before this, I say most, yeah. Absolutely. Almost all of them before this were photographs of the band or some type right. of portrait of the artist, whether it was a comedy album or a rock album or an opera, right? A lot of it was you know, this was a bunch of different, very significant figures throughout history in literature, in politics, in film, all of this being displayed all at once on. Uh, and there's so many layers you can actually analyze with just the album cover itself. Again, a reason that this is art, that this kind of promoted this idea of rock or pop can be artistic, which is why I consider right. it progressive rock. This album cover, um, it's just – it's it's unbelievable. You see all these different figures, and it's it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful album cover well, too.
2: Well, and I just have to add this because this is just something people have to know about this album. This was the very first album that came with the lyrics printed on the jacket.
1: Nice. It was also – it was also – yes, I, and, and to springboard off of that, it was also the first Beatles album that was the same track listing in both the UK and the US. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: That's super cool because yeah, yeah. I, I think that tells something about uh because that's actually very common in progressive rock to actually have the lyrics printed somewhere because right. um I think that they are are just you know, they're supposed to have some kind of meaning. Like the, you know, they're not there just to be like we're not gonna put a bunch of oohs and ahs and make it poppy and make it jumpy and stuff like that, and everybody'll enjoy it. You know, I think the ly- the lyrics have meaning. The lyrics are supposed to uh move the song in a certain way. I think that's really cool.
2: Yeah. It's it's just another example of the fact that this was supposed to be different. Yeah. For a reason. Yeah.
1: It was supposed to spark a, a type of intellectual discourse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, Absolutely. It um and it was interesting just a super fun fact. They didn't put Elvis on there because Paul felt Elvis was too important. He said no, mm-hmm. Elvis. I had is, read
2: that.
1: Yep. He's not just he's not just another musician. Elvis is the king and he right. doesn't he's too important to be on this album. Wow.
0: So I I just yeah. have I have one question and this is actually something that pertains to our our podcast as a whole, um, kind of outside of this, but I, I'm 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 trying to take myself from a, a different standpoint, a different mindset. Maybe I don't listen to progressive rock. I don't know what progressive rock is. I'm a friend of Drew and Destin and Rachel, and I'm listening to this just because they want me to. But I don't listen to prog <laughs> rock. I listen to it, and I just don't seem to get it. I listen to like some people say that this is a progressive rock album, and I listen to it, and yeah, I can appreciate it, but I, I just don't really get it. How come? What what what
1: would your answer be to that? Um, I mean, short and simple is I don't want to. I know we mentioned this on our first episode. I don't want to project my personal music tastes onto you and claim that if you don't listen to the same thing, then you're simple minded. No, not at all. I mean, everyone has their own personal music taste, and if this isn't your bag, it's not your bag.
2: Oh, I was going to absolutely say they're simple minded. Uh- no, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, we are our elitists here. No, not at all. Uh, you know, and I hope we don't give that impression. Um, y- you know, it's I, I guess the-, the short answer to that. I hope Destin, I'm not giving you a disappointing answer, but it's just that some people enjoy it and some don't because there are several. I mean, I, I studied film. When I went to college and there were several movies I watched that I hated, but I could still appreciate and analyze them. Right. So if this isn't your bag, that's cool. But I think that you can also engage in this conversation, you know, or if anyone ever mentions this album, you can say, no, I understand that it was significant and I can appreciate that. Now I can identify some elements that are progressive rock. And now I know a bit more about progressive rock or, or why this album and the Beatles can be attached to that subgenre
0: yeah i was i was going to agree with you on that too i was I was going to say that it's it's not a matter of if you if you don't necessarily like it or or dislike it um but there's a there's a sense of understanding that's there that I think a lot of people appreciate, especially for the people who actually do listen to it um and and do really enjoy it you know uh, i could listen to i can listen to all kinds of different albums and different genres, but somehow I always come back to- <laughs> To prog somehow i always come back to prog you know to uh progressive rock and i think that's um something that i wish a whole lot of more people would understand not necessarily like it like they don't have to love it as much as i do but i think part of why we're doing this podcast is because we want people to understand why we like it because i don't think it's talked about really ever um or, or i mean you know it's really just kind of Said and done. It's you know I like this and that's really it. It's there's not a whole lot of why questions happening there, and so that's that would be my answer to tie into to Drew's. I totally agree with you on that.
2: Well, and to expound on that, I think you also have to take into account um, different people want music to be different things. So yeah. you also have to think about from the perspective of what do you want music to be for you? Is this um, you know a total escape? Is this um, just you know, making you feel good, really liking the beat. Yeah. You know, I, a lot of lot, I like a lot of friends. So I'm like, or I have a lot of friends that I, I ask them, well, why do you like that song? And it's just so catchy, or I just, I really love the beat. It, or they may not have ever paid attention to what the lyrics are saying in the song at all, and they just as love long as that bass song, drum just the, smacks
0: you in the face, I'll right, listen to it. Yeah, right.
2: and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what you want. But I'm think, I think that if you find yourself curious about certain lines in music or about, um, a certain, you find that a certain riff really hits you and you don't know why more than just, Oh, that's really catchy. I enjoy that. Or it makes me move and want to dance that kind of thing. Um, then you owe it to yourself to explore more progressive, um, or just different avenues of music to see, what you what you really want to get out of music because you might be wanting to get more out of it than just a danceable tune. Um, I mean, I certainly love music that just makes me want to dance as much as anybody. But there's also a level of, um, that I want something more out of music because it just means a little bit more to me um, than it does to some other people. So I think you also have to approach it from that angle of, you know.
0: Yeah, you're does, absolutely right. Do these
2: people even want music to be something more than just fun and if (laughs) and if you
0: are this is a great album to start with sergeant peppers Mm -hmm. so thank you all for listening these are our prog notes we hope you learned something new about this record uh, especially or inspired you to even check it out for the first time or prog rock for the first time Uh, if you have not listened to this record please email us at prognotespodcast at gmail.com to let us know what you liked didn't like about the album I've been Destin Frost, aided by Drew Brown and Mrs. Rachel Brown. Everybody give a round of applause for Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Awesome. So join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Frog rock. Drew. Hmm. Oh my gosh. What is the next album we will be reviewing?
1: So I th- we deliberated on this. We wanted to do a King Crimson album. And I think that what we should do is in the court of the Crimson King, because of uh, its historical significance uh, in the realm of progressive rock. Oh, yeah. a lot to analyze there. It's going to be really fun. And King Crimson, we have mentioned a little bit in passing on this show. They are one of the pioneers. They are ones that you look to when you think prog rock. So it should be a good episode.
0: If you don't know who King Crimson is, good. Join us next episode. Thanks, guys. This is... (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Drew. We will see you next episode of Prog Notes. Thank you.